Friends, welcome to the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. My name is Tim Fulton, founder, chief evangelist for Small Business Matters. I'm your host for tonight's podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Taylor Fulton, the director of marketing for Small Business Matters. Taylor, good evening. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. We're just coming off the uh, the Small Business Matters conference was last week. Mm-hmm. We had a great conference. We had over 200 guests at the City Springs Conference Center here in Atlanta, and and you were one of our speakers. What was that like? It was fantastic. It was the first time I had spoken publicly uh, since COVID, so had to shake off the rust a little bit, but I think it went pretty well. Yeah, well, you got great feedback from our from our guests there, and as much as I was looking forward to that event uh, last week and seeing everybody. It's been nice this week, and now that it's it's beyond it, it's beside us. So we're it's good to be moving forward. But uh, Taylor, we've got uh, a great guest with us uh, tonight on the Small Business Matters podcast, Drew Dudley, who's a he's an internationally acclaimed leadership speaker, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. I'm going to take a minute to introduce Drew because I, I want to get him on just as quickly as possible. He's been called one of the most dynamic speakers in the world. Drew Dudley is on a mission to help people unlearn some dangerous lessons about leadership. Founder, chief catalyst of Day One Leadership, he's helped top organizations around the world increase their leadership capacity. Clients have included McDonald's, American Express, J.P. Morgan Chase, United Way, and over 100 different colleges and universities. Taylor, before this, Drew spent eight years as the lead of one of Canada's largest leadership development programs at the University of Toronto. He's also a best-selling author. The book is called This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. Started off as number six on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. As a speaker, Drew has delivered keynotes to more than 250,000 people across five different continents. I first got introduced to Drew Dudley, his TED Talk, uh, which I think was published in 2010, I want to say, titled Everyday Leadership, The Lollipop Moment, was voted one of the 15 most inspirational TED Talks of all time. And I looked this morning, Taylor, over 6 million people have watched that. And I think I've seen it a million times, so that might dilute some of those numbers. But it's it's one of my favorite uh, TED Talks. And I've shared it with many of my friends and clients. So, Drew, welcome to the Small Business Matters podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Tim. Taylor, it's awesome to be here. And it's weird. If you've seen that video a million times, that's about 999,996 more than I have. Uh, because, man, like we're such, we're so critical of ourselves. And that video, for all of the traction that it's given me career wise as a professional speaker looking back 12 years ago, man, it's poorly delivered. Like I go an eight and a half minute speech in six minutes. And so it's always means so much when people tell me that, you know, it mattered to them because for me, it's one of the biggest reminders in my life that you don't have to be perfect to be impactful. Cause I wish I could redo that speech, but at the same time, would it have the same impact as the guy who was terrified all those years ago talking so fast? So I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so glad that it's made its way out into the world. And I'm, I'm honored every time I hear someone's using it. So thanks, man. You're welcome. And, and Drew, my sense is that maybe you, I'd like to hear the story behind that TED Talk, because my sense is that you had not maybe planned 
to do that or maybe hadn't prepared. It just kind of came up. What, how did that come about? Well, it's interesting. Uh, comedians will tell you too, that the goal is to make it seem like you've never done it before that you're just coming up the top of your head. So I appreciate that, but no, it was planned. Like it was planned within an inch of its life. And uh, the story behind the Ted talk, just uh, in case people like go out and take a look at it. If you'd like everyone, I, I'm not going to repeat it necessarily here, but what basically happened is my students, and this I think is an excellent example of how important it is to believe in, in people you care about, even when they don't believe in themselves. Cause my students came in and I've been using Ted talks in a lot of my workshops as, as you know, you, you probably do too. And one of my students, the one who introduced me to Ted talks first said, Hey, they've got a conference in Toronto. They've got two open slots. Why don't you nominate yourself? And I said, ah, I'm, I'm just a part-time speaker. And for years I had told my students, they're not allowed to say they're just anything just as a, a powerful diminishing word we overuse. And so as soon as I said it, they were right on top of me saying, you know, you can't do that. You got to use no, nothing is more annoying than people pointing out your own advice to you. And uh, sure enough, I, I begged off. I was nervous. I was scared. And uh, they nominated me without my knowledge. I wasn't on Facebook at the time. And so they organized something on Facebook. And then I called up a friend of mine to say, Hey, I, I've been accepted. I got six minutes to give a speech. I can't introduce myself in six minutes as you're rapidly seeing right now. What do I do? I, I don't know what to say. And he said, tell that story about lollipops, which is eventually what I did. And I said, uh, you know what, man, I, I can't do it. It's a story about candy. Uh, this is a TED event, man. I get it. it doesn't have enough gravitas for a TED event. Long pause. And then my buddy says, dude, you got to get over yourself. Like your whole thing is that leadership has been made into something too big for most of us. And it's actually something much simpler. And now this is the biggest audience you'll ever get. And you're not going to tell your most powerful story because it doesn't make you sound smart enough. Get over yourself and do it. And if you ever use the word gravitas in my presence again, I'll slap you across the face. And it's just a, like when you, when your friends are trying to get out of something because they're scared, don't let them do it. And, and the whole backstory of that talk, which of course launched my career, I was doing speeches ahead of time, but like not for, not for these big companies. Right. And they just pushed me first, my students, and then my friend, they would not allow me to diminish myself in front of them. And, and I think that had such a positive impact on my life. It's something I try to remember moving forward for everybody, particularly if you're listening and you're a business owner, we have absolutely no idea how our behavior is being consumed by the people around us. And it's so stressful sometimes to run a business that I think we sometimes behave in ways that are less than we want to. And we don't realize that people are noticing. And, and so that's really the focus of my work is leadership exists in these individual moments of interpersonal impact. How are we paying attention to them? And more importantly, how do we create them consciously? Because we do it by accident if you're a good person. That's, if you're a good person, you do good things. Sure. The difference for my particular process is it's like the difference between random acts of kindness and conscious acts of kindness. And we celebrate random acts of kindness because when you see the opportunity to do something impactful, you seize it. And good people do that. Good leaders do that. I think what separates great leaders from good leaders is good leaders seize these opportunities for impact any chance, anytime it's presented to them. Great leaders go out and create those opportunities. And leadership isn't just in positions and titles. 
But if you're lucky enough to hold one of those positions or titles, you have more of an opportunity to engage in this individual moments of leadership. And so while I talk about leadership as existing in these moments and not so much about titles and influence, I do want people to recognize that if they've worked hard enough and, and managed to become one of these culture creators, a president, a CEO, an owner, that what you've essentially done is your position and your title is about responsibilities. Your leadership is about the actions that you choose to take every day. Yeah, and that's such a powerful thought. And for our listeners, the idea of the lollipop moments, and, and Drew, pardon me if I, if I screw this up, is that as leaders that, you know, we, we tend to think it's, it's the big moments, the big speeches, the big acts that, that how we earn our currency as a leader. And, and what, what you describe uh, to the listeners in the TED Talk is that it's more so about the little things that we do, the small moments that we have, the giving of a lollipop, you know, to someone, so to speak. And that's what makes us as leaders. And I know, you know, I find so many leaders overlook that, that idea. And whenever I show that TED Talk, I usually then ask the group for examples. I ask for volunteers. I say, hey, anyone want to describe a lollipop moment that they've experienced? And oh my goodness, the stories that I've heard just, you know, from that and the, the tears that start to swell up as people tell their stories of when someone has done something for them that was unexpected, unneeded, and yet, you know, an amazing experience. It, it's amazing to ask people, you know, to share those stories. So I'm curious what you have found now over the years. Is that something, how natural is that for leaders to, 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 to involve themselves in those moments and, and to understand those moments? Or is that something that has to be taught or maybe it's a little bit of both? Like most things, it's a mixture. Well, I think what's interesting is first, it's a mindset thing. Like for instance, you, you just used two words that weren't incorrect, but are tremendously different in terms of the credit that they give those moments. Because you said small moments and little moments, which is very common, right? But what I prefer to look at them is simple moments because they're not little, they're massive in impact. And I think that what really gets most leaders, particularly the people that might be listening here, is that when you establish to people that you get stuff done, like when you're a high performer, people start asking you to do it more often. Also, you see the rewards from getting stuff done. And what often happens is in pursuit of those bigger things, like what we want to get done this quarter or where we want to get the organization to this year over a five-year plan, is that we get so wrapped up in what we accomplish over blocks of time, this, this quarter, this year, this five-year block, that I think sometimes we allow our focus on where we want to get to big picture to let a lot of days go by where we don't create individual moments. So uh, if anyone just wants to pause and watch the TED Talk for six minutes, go ahead. If not, when we say lollipop moment, it's, the story, it's a story of a young woman telling me four years after the fact that she had chosen to quit university. And I happened to wander by at that moment with a bucket of lollipops I was using to promote a charity event that I was doing. And I told the guy next to her to give her a lollipop because they were just standing there awkwardly next to each other on their first day in line. And I guess when he did, I turned to her parents and said, look at that. It's her first day away from home. And she's taking candy from a stranger. Like nice parenting. And I did it just to make people laugh, right? To try to get them engaged in my charity. And she told me four years later that 
she ended up dating that guy. And they eventually invited me to their wedding. And so the idea was that lollipop moment that I call it, that moment where I engaged and created a moment that fundamentally changed the course of, of her life, I guess, because I introduced her to her husband, is I don't remember that and I did it by accident. And so now it's a question of how do we do it consciously? And I think that busy people have big goals. And in pursuit of our big goals, we sometimes forget that leadership isn't in the big stuff. It's in the consistent stuff. And can we be consistent every day in creating those moments of impact? Because all of the things we've been taught leadership are about money, power, influence, and prestige. I don't think they're goals in and of themselves. They're the natural byproducts that come to people who consistently create value-driven moments of impact for other people. So honestly, what I try to do is trick our brains using a behavioral psychology approach to say, okay, if you stand for accountability and customer service and growth and self-respect, these are your values, prove it. And here's how to trick your brain into actually doing at least one real thing every day that lives up to our values so that we can change an unfortunate reality, which is that the phrase, I'm the type of person who, it's always followed by a lie. Everything that comes after the phrase, I'm the type of person who is a lie. Like what's true about your character is not announced. It's demonstrated through actions, right? So I think leaders are good people. I just think that we get so many responsibilities that we sometimes figure I'll get around to being the person I want to be when I get this stuff off my to-do list. And let's face it, it's never off your to-do list. Every one of you listening, your to-do list is never empty. And if it is, you freak out. Like, honest to God, if I sit here and I'm like, I have nothing that I'm supposed to get done today, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. And we become addicted to that idea. And that, that down moment where we can be like, what are the values I want to live? And, and how have I done so today? How can I prove it? It kind of falls by the wayside because we work all day and then we go home and we have family to take care of. And how many days in a row can we string together saying that I am a man of empowerment? And yet you can't name one actual empowering action you take in the last four days. You can name a bunch of stuff you did to stay busy and to help your business survive. But can you point to the moment where you lived your values? I know they're both important, but our to-do list drives our lives a lot more than our to-be list. And if we can find a way to integrate the two of them, that's the key. key. So Drew, since your, your TED Talk, you've, you've traveled the world, you've worked with many, many big brands, small businesses, universities. What are one or two leadership topics or, or themes that, that businesses are getting wrong today or that are misconceptions? Well, okay. One thing I, uh, that really caught my eye 10 years ago, and it's part of what drives my work, is that there's a lot of money and time and consulting that goes into corporate values or business values, right? And what I find really interesting is that so much money and time goes into what are our corporate values. and So much discussion goes into how can we hire people who align with our values. And I kind of think this whole focus on value alignment, the company values and the employees, it's really not as important as people are making it out to be. Ultimately, what the research shows is that personal value clarity is far more important for employees to be engaged, happy, proud, and, and unlikely to leave. Understanding their own personal values is so much more important than understanding the corporate values. Yes, if you understand both, you're, you're a more engaged and happy employee. 
But if you only have to have one, believe it or not, the research shows very clearly that it's better to have your employees understand their own personal values as opposed to the corporate values. Because you don't need personal and corporate values to align. You need them not to conflict. And I think this idea of you have to be, you know, if this is our value, you have to have it. Man, if your value is customer service and this person's core value is compassion, look, they're not the same, but they sure as heck are out of alignment, right? So number one, all the research shows that one of the great untapped resources that businesses are failing to engage with is they're not helping their employees figure out what their own values are as employees and get to live them every day. If your employees know what their values are and feel like their job gives them the chance to live it every day, you have happier people, you are more productive, you make more money, and the people that are there don't leave as easily. So I think that's the first thing. The other thing is that we fail to recognize that if someone doesn't feel like they get to be the person they hope to be through their work at least once a day, they're going to constantly be looking for an out. And so I think what's so important is to make sure that we don't allow the individuals we pay the least to believe that their value is dictated by where they fall on the spectrum of financial compensation. One thing that I think, and every company is going to deal with this differently, but one thing every business owner I think has to realize, and I say this to the biggest companies in the world, the people who have the most interaction with your customers, with your clients, the ones who therefore have the biggest influence on what people write and say and think about your organization and business, they're almost always the people we pay the least. They are the ones who have the most interaction and play the biggest role in our reputation, and they are almost always paid the least. Recognize that and realize that you have to have a conscious plan to let those people know that they're not just minimum wage employees. They're not just frontline staff. They are the ones who form your reputation. And the more often we can remind them of that, the better off that we are. So those are two key pieces is that personal value clarity in your employees is crucial. Help them understand that. And the second piece always is that never lose sight of the fact that people are trained to believe their worth is tied to how much they're paid. And ultimately, you cannot have the lowest paid people in your organization thinking like that, that how much they're paid is not how much they're worth. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that, I think, is important. So to follow up on your, your first points, I think it's, it's really, really unique in the fact that it, it's not one that you read all the time, because historically, as leaders, we don't get into the personal stuff, right? We, we keep it strictly business. So how are you recommending that we start breaching those topics in a workplace? Yeah, one of the things I think is to uh, let the employee... And see, this is my approach, right? And, and this is not the only way that it's done. But one of the things I ask people to do is I ask them all to put together a list of 30 of their best pieces of advice for life and for work. Uh, I, I tell it the edge of the bed advice. I say, imagine it's your kid's last day at home they're going off to get married, go to school, whatever. You sit on the edge of their bed that night and they ask you, what do I need to know? What do I need to know to be happy, to be successful, to, to build strong friendships and relationships? Give me 30. And I ask the people in the organization to write down their 30. And then we get together and we share some of them. I compile them into a document and we want to send them out to everyone to make them realize that the people you work with are people. 
the reason I think we separate personal and business, I, I get it. At the same time, when you better understand what people feel is important in their life, what their values are, I think that we're better off in, in order to solve workplace problems and conflicts if we understand where people are coming from as people. One of the key things I'll say to everyone listening is that never forget that every single interpersonal and organizational dysfunction with which you have to deal has the same root cause, fear. People are afraid. They're afraid that they're going to have something taken away, their job, their money, their influence, their respect, opportunities, or they're afraid they're going to be given stuff that they're not ready for, more work, things they're not skilled enough at. And the problem is that when people are afraid, they behave in certain ways. They could be afraid of something at home, at work, whatever it is. And we tend to address dysfunction at the level of the behavior. That person showing up late, that person snapped at me. That's the behavior. But if we can find a way to address dysfunction at the level of the fear that drives it, mm. that person is afraid that I'm after their job. That person is afraid that their department is going to get fewer resources as a result of these changes. If we can address the dysfunction at the level of the fear, as opposed to the behavior, we're always better off. And I think that's something that's really important is that when we get people sharing their wisdom, when we get people discussing the values they want to live through their work, we better understand the people we work with and we can better see their behavior as emerging from something they're afraid of. And then our job is not to do battle with them. It's to see what role we can play in alleviating their fear. Every time you're having problems at work, it's because somebody who works for you is afraid of something. Now, maybe it has nothing to do with your business they're afraid of. It's some other part of their life. But whenever we can ask one simple question as a leader, always take a moment, take a breath and ask yourself, what are they afraid of? We have to take a breath. We have to stop. We have to get over our anger and frustration at whatever behavior we just saw. And we have to say, what are they afraid of? And it just gives us a moment of humanity. And that I think is key. Oh, what great insights and and Drew, if, if business understood what you just shared with our listeners, we could have avoided this whole great resignation. <laughs> 40 million employees leaving their jobs. Why? Because I think to a, to a large degree, what you've just described. Yeah, and, and I think that you just hit it on the head. Demographics are shifting. But ultimately, I think what really comes down to is it is better to be financially bankrupt than it is to be spiritually bankrupt. And I mean, most people look around and realize that too many people love them for them to starve. Too many people love them for them to end up homeless. But every day, look at it this way. Someone once asked me, how much money would it cost for me to be miserable every day? Nobody would die. I wouldn't lose anything permanently but I would be miserable, unhappy, and anxious for an entire year, relentlessly. How much money would it cost for me to go through that? And I looked at him and I thought about it and I said, 5 million bucks, I would put up with a year of being pretty miserable if it meant no long-term like loss of friends, family. And he said, are you paid less than $5 million? And I said, yeah. And he said, that it's not $5 million you'll accept to be miserable for a year. It's whatever your salary is. And that to me, are we paying people to be miserable? And if that's what we're doing, if the only thing that makes them stay is how much you're paying them, if you know you'll jump as soon as you're given a chance, 
we're not living in a business that that's going to keep the best people. And so ask yourself that are people only staying at your business because of how much they get paid or do you give them the opportunity to feel like they're more and it's hard. It is. I mean, that's why I have a, a job, right? Because that I can go and help people do it as opposed to, I know it must be frustrating if you're listening, being like, thanks dude for telling us what we have to do. Uh, how about the how? And, you know, obviously that's what my work focuses on and, and we can't dive into it here, but remembering that people need a level of fulfillment in their lives, even if their job is minimum wage, I think is crucial. And what are the ways that we as, as business owners uh, can find a way to let people know that we expect them to do meaningful things in their job, regardless of, of what it is, and not just make us money. Drew, let's shift gears. You've got a best-selling book. This is day one. How did the book come about? And what are people taking away from the book? What, what's the key takeaway? Well, for me, I think the key piece is in the subtitle of the book, which is a practical guide to leadership that matters. I wanted to lay out a step-by-step process that people could use every day because any plan I give you that only works when you got extra time or you're in a good mood probably isn't going to work. So the book came about because of constant badgering by my agent, by my friends. It came down to this. Over the course of 10 or 12 years speaking, you start to develop a lot of content and you still only get 60 minutes. Like you could be speaking for 25 years and you're still given the same amount of time that you did 25 years ago. And yet you got a lot more to say. The book was my opportunity to take a lot of the content that just there was no longer room for. I'd never get the chance to share and put it into one thing. And it came about because of somebody else believing in me again. My, my late girlfriend found it in a drawer a year after I wrote it and insisted that I... She made me promise that I'd at least send it to publishers because I wasn't, you know, you write it, it's not any good, blah, blah, blah. And uh, she made me that, she made me promise that. And then she passed away only a couple weeks later. And really, if you want to ask me why the book came about, that's why. I mean, it was written because people were badgering me. It was written because I wanted to get these ideas out. It was published and became a bestseller because someone who loved me would not allow me to hide it and uh, do that for the people that you love. But you'll get a step-by-step process to identifying, defining, and then living your values every day. You will develop what I call the leadership test, a series of questions that you challenge yourself with each day. And the reason we do questions is because the psychological research shows that an unanswered question let loose in your brain will cause you so much psychic discomfort that you will actually change your behavior in order to answer it. So if you create a series of test questions to drive your leadership every day, you're actually making your brain so uncomfortable that you'll act the way you want just to alleviate that discomfort. So that's what the book's all about. Awesome. And, and kind of speaking of tests, and I don't know if yours goes into this or not, but I know myself and, and many managers, leaders, executives that I work with have a sense at times of imposter syndrome where like we know we're in a leadership position, but it doesn't always feel natural. So how do we know if what we're doing is right or impactful or we're just like a good leader or maybe not so good leader? <laughs> Watch how many people uh, stay. You know, when, when I had the newest, uh, I have a speaking agency I now work with. And the first question I asked when they were talking about me switching and joining them was how many of your, what percentage of your employees have been there for more than five years? And it was like 90%. 
And, you know, where I was, it was less than five. And, and that says a lot about what your turnover is. It also depends on your, on your industry, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just some, my sister runs a restaurant and that's a totally different reality than what I do, right? So you're not going to have a ton of employees in the last five years in a restaurant. It, it's just not the nature of what it is. So if your people come to you without you having to go to them, I think that's one. But here's the thing. You, you will never really believe whether you're a good leader or not, let alone whether or not, you know, <laughs> maybe you are but you're not going to believe it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the nature of it. And so for me, what I would suggest to people is stop worrying about whether you think you've done enough for your position and instead focus on engaging in those daily commitments to yourself and all the other stuff takes care of it, right? We're trying to evaluate ourselves by what we've accumulated and accomplished over blocks of time. And I want to break it down into daily behaviors. Imposter syndrome is nonsense. Now, I'm not saying that people don't feel it. What I'm saying is syndrome is a really negative word. It's associated with disease, right? It's associated with uh, like pathology. And yet, what you just described, I don't feel like I deserve this or I don't feel like I belong or I feel like I'm faking it, is an almost universal human condition. If everyone has it, how is it a disease? If everyone has it, How is it a syndrome? What we've done is we've taken a fundamental part of who we are as people and we pathologized it. And we made it so that emotions and humanity that everybody feels is somehow uh, undesirable. Look, obviously we don't want to feel that way, but can we stop acting like everybody doesn't feel that way? Because you don't feel like an imposter when you realize everybody else feels the same way. Imposter syndrome is this feeling that says they're all going to find out. They're going to figure it out. I'm going to be outed as someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Guess what? When we realize nobody else feels that that way, the only people who don't feel imposter syndrome are blank holes. All right? Like, that's it. If you don't feel imposter syndrome, I don't want to deal with you. All right? Because you're a narcissist or a sociopath. Please don't worry if you feel as if you don't belong or you're not doing it right. It means you're like 98% of humanity. And I think that one of the best things that we can do as leaders and as people is to just be a little bit easier on ourselves. Toxic positivity is a term I had never heard before, but I love it because it refers to the idea that we have made people believe if they're not pure of heart and if they don't want to do the right thing right away, you're not a good person. You know what makes you a good person? Whether you push back against that instinct to be a dick and do the right thing. But this positivity, this oh, we should all find a way to forgive and love and everything. Man, every time someone doesn't feel that way, they think they're bad. Tell you what, someone comes to you and says, hey, can you switch seats on the plane? And your first instinct is, hell no. Like, I don't want to do that. But then you look and it's a two-year-old and they're clearly upset and you change seats. What toxic positivity says is you're a bad person because you didn't immediately go, of course, love and and friendship and, and everything. It makes us think that if that wasn't our first instinct, we're not good people. Look, you switched seats. You did it. You thought about it. Your demon said, don't do it. And you did it anyway. That's one thing that I'd really say when it comes to imposter syndrome. Let's stop using that term. Because what we're doing is we're pathologizing the human condition. Let's stop doing it. If you think you're not doing it right and you don't know, just keep doing it. That's great advice. Drew, one more question, and then we'll move to our rapid-fire questions. 
So this the last two years, COVID, the pandemic, certainly has not been an, an era that we have enjoyed or hoped to return to. And yet, in some way, it's it's been one big laboratory for leadership, one big experiment in leadership. And so, you know, we've got two-thirds of employees working remote. We've got a you talked about fear and stress levels that we've never seen before, employees choosing to retire, to switch jobs. What have you seen? What have you noticed over the two years in terms of leadership? What have you noticed and what can you recommend going forward to leaders that will be effective as we go post-pandemic now? What, What would you suggest? Well, one, one thing that's been incredibly disappointing is that the formal leadership, the, the kind that we're taught about, the individuals elected, the individuals in positions to actually lead have just absolutely been a disappointment on every level. Um, but I mean, that's politics, right? But ultimately, the goal is not, I, I just wish people would stop talking about saving the country, protecting the country, defending the country, and realize your job is to run the country. And doing that means your primary goal has to be to serve people, not to screw the other side. And that's been a real challenge for me. One of the things I loved at the beginning of the pandemic, especially in Canada, like I I don't necessarily think this was a record in the United States, but the political parties seem to have a two month or one month or six week block where it was understood that for the good of the people, they couldn't attack one another. So when the government made mistakes in the early days, like on a Friday, they'd announce a, a program and then on Monday, they'd cancel it because over the weekend, the business community went, that's a terrible idea. But usually in politics, you can't change course. You can't say we're going to do this, realize that it's not the best path and then change course because people are waiting to destroy you because you didn't do it right the first time. A terrible approach. But what happened early on is that positional leaders kind of agreed that for the good of everyone, we won't attack people. When you make a mistake, we're going to file it away, but we're not going to go after you. We're going to allow you to change. And I think that there was so many good things, even though it was a terrible situation, so many good things happened because for just a little while, people decided that attacking one another would not be a part of leading through a very difficult time. People will be better leaders when they can take it for granted that they will be forgiven for their mistakes. And so one of the things that I think will be key for leaders moving forward is to create a roadmap for what is expected every day in terms of positive impact. It will be a strange and unmapped path back from what we've been through. When we don't know what the future holds, we often won't act in the present because we're afraid it will mess up the future. It is better to be decisive than it is to be certain in business. And so I think the idea with the leadership test, what I try to do with my work is to say, when we don't know what the future holds, here is a guidepost to what to do today. And I think that as leaders, if we can acknowledge the uncertainty around us, the fear around us, and say, but I have a clear set of what's expected today. And if we just keep doing that, we will build momentum. I would argue that as we move through such a time of uncertainty, bear in mind, all of you listening, that momentum is more important than plans. 
And I know that everyone's got to have plans. They got to have goals, but look, make every decision in this time of uncertainty based on two factors, which will generate the most future options and which will generate momentum. When you don't know what the future holds, make the key momentum. So just be moving forward. Mm -hmm. We'll figure out the rest as we go. And one thing that COVID has taught us, and I think this is part of the great resignation, is that your job doesn't need you and you don't need your job. And what the great resignation is about, first and foremost, is that people actually believe that truth and they didn't, which is what every addict does. Mm -hmm. You don't believe you can live without it. And we become addicted to our salaries in many cases. Now, business owners listening, you realize it can be stressful, it can be scary, but there is freedom that comes from breaking that addiction, right? The three most addictive things on earth, crack, carbohydrates, and a salary, which is why everybody here who's become like a business owner who has gotten out, like maybe you're paying yourself a salary, take a moment every now and then to just celebrate the fact that you broke an addiction that breaks a lot of people. And as hard as that is, and as, as many new challenges as that brings, you deserve credit just for having that courage. Yeah. And I, I love that, Taylor. I love that idea for leaders, the idea of the power of momentum, that, that part of your job is to create, create momentum, create movement going forward. Better to be decisive than to be right. I, I love that. Decisive than to be certain. Then certain. Like it's good to be right, but, but yeah. um, because you can be decisive and you can almost never be certain. Yeah. So Taylor, we're now going to go to our rapid fire questions. Drew, the way this works is Taylor's going to ask you a number of uh, short answered questions. He is certain that he's going to trip you up in some way. I am betting on you. Taylor, okay. take, take over. All right. A lot of pressure here. Uh, we'll start with an easy one, Drew. So if you had one book to recommend to our audience, what would it be? Man's Search for Meaning, probably. Any, any specific reason why? Uh, because there are so many ways, whatever challenge you're facing in your life, that book will change your mindset about what people are capable of and what you're capable of. Awesome. Uh, so you do a fair amount of public speaking. What is one tip about public speaking you would give our audience? Ooh. Don't try to be inspiring. Don't try to be motivating. Try to be useful. Useful and compelling ideas are inherently motivated. When you go on stage, your primary goal should always be, how can I be useful to the audience? When you step on the stage, it's about them, not about you. Fantastic. That's great insight. Um, staying on the, the, the travel topic for a second, you do quite a bit of traveling for speaking engagements and work. Uh, what is your favorite city that you visited? In my book, I talk about uh, the words favorite and best and how they should be avoided at all costs. The idea, uh, the, well, this was taught to me by two guys who told me that um, greatest is the enemy of great because as soon as you rank things, everything that isn't number one gets diminished, even though it's still awesome, right? So the second best city or second favorite city is a great city, but it gets diminished because it's not number one. Uh, so instead, they told me to just talk about the great line or things above the great line. So here are some of the cities that I absolutely love that are above the great line. Number one, Savannah, Georgia. I hey, am so in go. love with Savannah, Georgia. Charleston, I love San Diego. 
almost everything on the Pacific Coast Highway from California all the way up is extraordinary. San Antonio, Texas was a surprisingly magnificent, beautiful spot that I never expected. They have something called the Riverwalk. I'd never heard of it. Um, White Sands National Monument in New Mexico is a place to go. Take time to go to the Field of Dreams in Iowa. It is certainly not a city, but New York City is probably the most electric place on earth. And Washington, D.C. was designed to be intimidating and awe-inspiring to foreign heads of state, and they hit it on the head. So people want to travel the world, and hey, do it. But if you're American, travel America. It's 50 different countries in one. Uh, Also, uh, Banff and Canmore, Alberta will blow your mind. Toronto is a world-class, extraordinary city. I can't say enough good things about here. Niagara-on-the-Lake is one of the most beautiful towns on earth. Warren, Vermont, and the store. So all, all of these things, guys, there's a million. Go out and explore every chance that you get. We'll have to have a whole separate podcast on travel. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we were talking before the podcast and come to find out you are a Toronto Blue Jays fan. Oh, yeah. What is your, uh, I'm not going to use the word favorite, but maybe a handful of, of great moments in Toronto Blue Jays history? Oh, my gosh. Um, the Jays were my dad to me. Like the Jays, like uh, fathers and their, and their sons and their sports teams, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, obviously, you know, the 92 and 93 World Series back-to-back championship teams, I was in, you know, the beginning of high school. So that's the perfect time for your team to be awesome. Uh, watching uh, Dave Steve finally throw a no-hitter after I think three one-hitters broke it up in the ninth inning. The greatest sports experience I've ever had in my life was game five of the ALDS against the Texas Rangers in 2015 when Jose Batista... Uh, did the bat flip and uh, <laughs> That's right. that was extraordinary the next year. And when I, and Carnacion walked off the Orioles, uh, all of these are amazing, but without a doubt, the greatest memory I have associated with the blue Jays is Jerry Howarth is the radio play by play guy for 35 years. And so he explained baseball to me because the Jays weren't on television very often when I was a kid. So I would listen to the radio call with my dad. That's that's the greatest memories is out in a canoe, out in a boat, on the dock, listening to the Jays with my dad. And Jerry Howarth, when he retired, I wrote an article about what he had taught me about leadership. Somehow it got to him. He asked me if he could use it as the introduction to his autobiography. And then he was kind enough to get two tickets for my dad and I to a game, the last one we ever went to together. And he came out and talked to him for an hour this voice that had been everything about this thing that we shared together. And it was the happiest I saw my dad in the last three years of his life. And so for me, the Jays aren't about sports. The Jays are about my relationship with my father who passed away in the first couple months of the pandemic. And so that's the greatest moment in Jays history for me. It wasn't a game. It was, it was going and just sitting there for 45 minutes watching Aaron Judge crush baseballs in batting practice uh, <laughs> as the visiting team and just have uh, Jerry Howarth sit and talk to my dad for 45 minutes about Halliday versus Steve, about this outfielder versus that outfielder 20 years later. You know, like that to me was, uh, was remarkable. Yeah. That just shows the power of sports, right? Yeah, it really does. And the power of a single gesture. Like 45 minutes, man. He doesn't think he's that impressive, but that man is the voice of some of the best times in my life. And he, he was so kind to, to make, to be so generous with his own. That's so cool. 
So Drew, we'll get you out of here on this. You might not know this, but we had Benjamin Franklin at our conference last week or an actor that looked really close to Benjamin Franklin that fooled the thing about half the audience. Uh, if you could go back and meet one historical figure, who would it be and why? One historical figure? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Who would it be and why? I think I'd like to meet Jesus just because I'd like to get some clarification on a few things. And I think... I think you and a few million other people, right? Yeah, I think he could offer some clarifications on things that might sort a few things out. Although probably if it wasn't what they wanted, Fox News would tell us all to ignore him. But yeah, I, I can't help but think that when it comes to influential people that I'd love to actually get to sit down with a list of questions and, and, and film and be like, hey, some people might be interested, probably Jesus. If I could pick anyone, it would be my late girlfriend. I'd love to have one more meal with her. I never got to say goodbye. And yeah, um, and maybe Alexander Hamilton, just so we could go to the musical together and I could be like, so what do you think? <laughs> I'm sure he'd love a that. bastard, orphan, son <laughs> of a... And I'm like, he's got to be sitting there being like, dudes, like what? Come on. <laughs> Friends, you're listening to the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. Our, our guest uh, this evening has been Drew Dudley, acclaimed leadership speaker, Wall Street Journal uh, bestselling author. Drew, I'm sure our listeners will want to reach out and contact you after listening to this podcast. What's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, DrewDudley.com. If you go to DrewDudley.com, everything from our phone number to our uh, email addresses, that's the place to go. And thank you. And uh, I want to also reinforce for our listeners, uh, Drew's book, this is day one, a practical guide to leadership that matters. I'm sure it's on Amazon, and I want to recommend that book to all of our listeners. Taylor, I've got a page full of notes. Just want to share a couple. This The, the, the idea of simple moments, uh, the power of simple moments for leaders, the, the lollipop moments. Drew also distinguished between corporate values and personal values and the importance for leaders to help individuals understand their, their own personal values, helping them become better, part of the role of the leaders, helping their followers become better at whatever they, they're best at. He also talked about the importance for leaders to understand what is it that your people are fearful of? What keeps them up at night and understanding that? And also, the, the he talked about the imposter syndrome, and, and I love the way that he basically said, you know, forget about it. Forget about it. We all, we all feel that that way. And, and it's not a, not a syndrome at all. Better to be decisive than to be certain. The importance for leaders to, to create and maintain momentum within their organizations. I thought that was powerful. And then lastly, the answering the question that you asked about becoming a better speaker the idea of being useful, asking yourself, how can I be more useful to this audience? I, I, I love that answer. Taylor, how about for you? Any particular takeaways? You covered quite a bit of them, but yeah, for me personally, you know, I think too often I, I approach my work and business from like an X's and O's standpoint and not as much attention on the personal side and, and focusing on people. And especially where we are today with the pandemic, with the great resignation, with just how we've shifted culturally, uh, I think it, it's more important now than, than ever before. Well, Drew, thank you so much for being with us. We wish you nothing but great success and happiness going forward.
My friends, this has been so much fun. Thanks for the, the honor of letting me share ideas. Listeners, we ask you to please rate, review, and subscribe to the Small Business Matters podcast. If you're not already a subscriber to our newsletter, the Small Business Matters newsletter, encourage you to do that at our website, www.smallbusinessmattersonline.com. Thank you for listening to the Small Business Matters podcast. It is the only podcast that truly matters to small business. May each of you continue to pursue all that matters.